What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all of the original writing on our site at SupChina.com. We've got reported stories, editorials, regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, our podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious effort to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I am Kaiser Guo, and I am coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. In this time of heightened tensions between the PRC and Taiwan, and by extension, you know, the United States, it's perhaps a good time to reminisce about better days across the Taiwan Straits and uh, remind people of Taiwan's critical role in the story of China's post-Mao modernization, a rise that I think Chinese people are rightfully proud of, but that was, you know, I think accelerated dramatically by Taiwan in a way that often goes unremarked upon. When we tell the story of reform and opening in China, it is very important, therefore, to give due credit to Taiwan. For most of the 20 years I lived in China from the mid-90s until 2016, I often heard uh, that there were, in any given year, it's always the same number, it's always a million Taiwanese, Taiwan Tongbao, as, as they were called, living on the mainland, and why that number never actually changed and why... The notion that you know, maybe what, 4 or 5% of the entire population of Taiwan was actually living in the PRC, why that number wouldn't be greeted with a little bit of skepticism, I don't, I don't know. But what the actual source of that number is was ever mysterious to me. But whatever the case, there's no doubting that there was considerable influence. It was massive influence. And uh, whether we're talking about the culture, you know, the way that fashionable people talked, uh, the way that, uh, you know, I mean, all, all this stuff. Taiwan was punching way above its weight, and it was obvious anywhere you looked. I mean, it's business in, uh, you know, you name it. Taiwanese investment, though it was pretty hard to measure, was clearly of enormous significance. But perhaps even more important was how Taiwanese entrepreneurs in China, those famous Taishang, helped China to become the factory to the world, to integrate into the global supply chain, and then to ascend the value chain with increasingly higher value-added uh, businesses. So today on Seneca, we are going to be talking about Taiwan's substantial, indeed probably decisive, contribution to China's meteoric economic rise. And to tell us all about that, I am just Absolutely delighted to welcome Shelley Rigger. Shelley is Brown Professor of Political Science at Davidson College, just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, a couple of hours from me down I-85. 
Shelley is a leading, hell, she is the leading scholar on modern China, though that, of course, is not her only focus. She teaches uh, and has written extensively on the PRC as well. She puts all of this to really good use in a new book called The Tiger Leading the Dragon, How Taiwan Propelled China's Economic Miracle, which we will, of course, focus on today. Shelley Rigger, welcome to Seneca. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm a, a huge fan, big listener. And just really excited to be with you. Oh, fantastic. Well, you know, you've been with us before, I should probably remember, although you, we didn't actually get to talk. Uh, listeners to the show will recall that Seneca actually ran a two-parter with Shelley that had originally run on my very good friend Nason Makwubi's excellent podcast for the University of Pennsylvania Center for the Study of Contemporary China. Uh, that podcast, in spite of its length, offers, <laughs> I still think, one of the most succinct factual and frankly, you know, enjoyable histories of Taiwan, really from like pre-17th century through, you know, early 2019 when it was recorded. So uh, anyone who is interested in getting a refresher on Taiwan that is refreshingly free of ideological spin, but also just peppered with all sorts of fun turns of phrase and memorable metaphors, uh, which Shelley is, um, that's her stock and trade, as you'll see. <laughs> Uh, you should go back and listen to that one. It's from March of 2019. So Shelley, it's just so great to have you. Uh, you open the book with a preface that I think really captures a lot of the story that the book tells. And it captures it in microcosm. It's the story of the Futai Umbrella Group, which was started by a Taiwanese man named Chen Tianfu. It really, I think it just sets the stage so nicely for the book. And I thought maybe the story of Futai would serve the same function on this podcast. So tell us about this guy, Chen Tianfu, and how he came to truly be the Umbrella King. Right. So at the end of World War II, he was like many other young Taiwanese, you know, desperate for employment, looking for something to do. And he went into the fruit business. He was a banana guy, and he actually <laughs> worked for the Banana King of Taiwan. And so he was helping to export fruit from Taiwan to Japan. And unlike a lot of other entrepreneurs in Taiwan and everywhere, uh, he had some vision and imagination. And he thought, you know, just trying to get these bananas to their destination before they turn brown and cheap <laughs> is, is not my destiny um, as a businessman, and I want to try something else. And so he went into the umbrella business. As one does. Yeah. As one does, right? Especially in Taiwan, right? Which a lot of places are really rainy. So yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a big market for umbrellas. And, and this was also a moment when technology was improving really rapidly. So, you know, there were these umbrella companies in Japan that were making ad advanced umbrellas for the time. And he said, I'm going to bring this to Taiwan. And so he started out manufacturing for others. And then he little by little mastered the processes of manufacturing. So first putting together a frame that is imported from Japan and assembling it to the nylon cover and then learning how to do the frame and then learning how to, you know, pull the metal to make the frame. And so little by little, he became a, a full manufacturer of umbrellas. And the umbrella industry moved from Japan. You know, Japan's marching up the value chain into higher and higher value-added products. And some of that lower-end stuff, like umbrella making, 
is moving to other places and the umbrellas move to Taiwan. Yeah. So, you know, he gets better and better at that. Then he branches out into a bunch of other things. Bicycle spokes. Parts yeah. for, yeah, parts for bicycles, parts for all kinds of stuff. Aluminum capacitor covers. I'm not even sure I know what that is. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's this pretty diversified business. And then he started making umbrellas for export under other brands. Right. So he got contracts with American companies to make umbrellas for sale in the U.S. So his business begins small in Taiwan, grows to be sort of import substitution industrialization mm -hmm. in Taiwan, and then through the contract manufacturing process becomes a, uh, an export-oriented business. And grew and grew and grew. He becomes the owner of many, many patents. So the first self-folding umbrella and then the first four-way self-folding umbrella, you know, all of these patents are held by Futai Umbrella Company. So it, it's also doing R&D. It's also, you know, it's not just a factory. It is a, a genuine uh, innovator in the umbrella space. And then the next thing that happened was in the late 1980s, when costs of production in Taiwan were getting really high, like many other industries, the umbrella industry looked to mainland China as a manufacturing base with a much lower cost structure that would allow them to continue to do the same thing for the same international clients at a much lower price. So, you know, that is the story in a nutshell of the Futai Umbrella Group that, you know, there's probably one in your closet. Right. There are no several, including the four-way folding umbrella. But it's not just in a nutshell the Futai Umbrella Group, but it's also in a nutshell. I mean, it's almost too on the nose to be believable, but it's it's like a perfect metaphor. And listeners, as, as we go through the story, you'll see every element of it is already there, you know, present in, in the story of the Futai Umbrella Group. Uh, but before we plunge into the the more you know the broader story of the rise of the Taishang, I wanted to bring up um, some insightful points about China and and Taiwan, and what you call the sort of psychological distance between them. So Chen Tianfu, let's let's I mean he was born in I think it was like 1926. This is when Japan still occupied China. Of course, after the Treaty of Shimonoseki uh, in 1895, China ceded. The Qing Dynasty ceded Taiwan to Japan, and for the next fifty years, they occupied Taiwan and operated it as a colony. Now, the, the the war didn't end until he was what eighteen or nineteen, so he would have learned Japanese in school along with his native Minan and his Minan Chinese. And I mean, in any case, what I think was was fascinating was I mean, and this is something that again that I think a lot of mainlanders don't grasp is that. For that entire period, for the entire, I mean, look, all, think of the events between 1895 and 1945 that they missed out on, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, we're talking about the scramble for concessions, the Hundred Days reforms, the Boxer Uprising, um, you know, the, the early Qing reforms or the late Qing reforms, rather, uh, they miss out on. On, on, you know, the 1911, you know, the Xinhai Revolution, they, or in the Second Revolution, and the Third Revolution, Yuan Shikai, Yuan Shikai's death, the, the warlord period, <laughs> and the whole, the whole thing. And so, I mean, I, I really like that phrase, psychological distance, that you called it. Yeah, 
modern Chinese nationalism was forged between almost precisely between 1895 and 1945. Yes. yes. And Taiwanese were just not there for it. You know, they were in an entirely different social, economic, linguistic, cultural, and political space. And there was an awareness. I'm not saying that people in Taiwan, you know, were clueless or not paying any attention, but this was not their experience. The way you and, put it in your book was, it's hard for mainland Chinese to understand how the Taiwanese can be unmoved by this history. That's yeah. true. I mean, I, I think that, that this is a point of resentment. I think it's really, it's, uh, yeah. And I think that if, if people understood that, if they, if they understood more about the, the Taiwan experience, I think they would extend a little bit of damned empathy. Yeah, well, it's, particularly inflammatory uh, when it's people like Li Donghui, who mm. was Taiwan's president from 1988 to 2000. And, you know, Li Donghui was a member of the KMT, the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, and he paid lip service to unification. But I don't think China was, I think China was an abstraction for him. Right. You know, he never went there in his entire life. Right. You know, he was born a Japanese citizen. He spent time in Japan. He uh, was involved in World War II on the Japanese side. You know, he became Chinese as a fully fledged adult. He became a citizen of the Republic of China. And I just really think that for him and for people of his generation, China was this abstraction. It was a, a thing they had to pay lip service to in order for Taiwan to survive and thrive. But that consciousness is so inflammatory to Chinese nationalists, both in Taiwan and in the PRC, because they just say, how how dare you? How could right. you? But of course, you and I look at this history and we think about it from from the perspective of people like Li Donghui and think, how could he not? Yeah, it's not his fault. Right. It's, really, it's just not his fault. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Shelley, the book, I, I have to say, is also really refreshingly free of methodology and quantitative analysis. <laughs> okay, I mean, I, I mean I, I've, I've just gone through a period where I've read many, many books that are excellent. They're excellent books, but they are really chock full of that, that stuff. So, you know, you deploy the stats that you need, I mean, when they help to tell the story better. Uh, but this is, at its heart, just a good old narrative account of a fascinating and not well understood phenomenon. But, you know, I think some people will be understandably frustrated by the lack of some of the basic numbers around this phenomenon. I mean, how many of these Taiwanese business owners were there? Uh, what about the, the total amount of their investment and how that tracked over time? Or the number of employees working for Taiwan Invested Enterprises? I mean, what are the reasons why none of this seemingly basic data is available at all? Yeah, that is a great question. And first of all, I just want to say it is such a privilege to work at a place like Davidson College, where our the expectation of scholars here, teacher scholars here, is that we stay engaged with the world and we know a lot of stuff and we care about learning and that we, are, we do great teaching, but not necessarily that we are slaves to a particular methodological approach. Oh. So, you know, as a tenured professor at Davidson College, I can actually write something that I can happily give my father to read. My previous book, Why Taiwan Matters, was written totally with my mother in mind. Um, wow. And as I was writing, I'm thinking, you know, if mom's getting bored right now, I need to like 
pick up the pace. <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. But for, with this book, it, it's really essential that I write in that way because so much of this information is just not available. Hmm. So both sides of the strait kept records and keep records on the amount of approved investment, actual investment from all of the investment sources that exist. And none of it is really reliable. Like um, the approved doesn't match the actual, the actual and approved on the Taiwan side don't match the actual and approved on the PRC side. Wow. Uh, there's just an enormous amount of inconsistency. And that's because this entire process really until after 2008 mm -hmm. was carried out in an environment of zero government to government coordination. Right. So the Taiwanese business people, the Taishang, they just went and they knew that they, you know, when they crossed that water, they were leaving behind the legal protection that they could take for granted in Taiwan, but that they also could have taken for granted in a lot of other investment destinations. They were walking into a kind of wild, wild west, and they, they chose to do it. But what that meant was no one could really keep track of what they were doing and no one could control what they were doing. So one of the more interesting things to note is that among China's top 10 sources of foreign direct investment are the British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, and Panama. <laughs> right, right, right. None of which is actually originating anything close to the amount of money that's coming through. So we know that these are uh, these are pass-throughs for Taiwanese money. They're also pass-throughs for Hong Kong money. They're pass-throughs for PRC money, round tripping. That's right. You know, and so it's just impossible to know how much of those figures should be attributed to whom. And then the other one that we don't know is, you know, your your comment at the beginning that, you know, everybody always tells you there's a million Taiwanese in in the PRC. <laughs> yeah, that's that's such a nice round number, isn't it? It's I remember convenient. when it was like 500,000 and then the next year it was 600,000 and then it was 700,000 and now it's been holding steady at a million. <laughs> Again, nobody knows because we, you know, we can look at how many trips are taken how many people actually like stamp uh, an identity document mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. each side, but we don't know how long they're staying. So many of these Taishang go back and forth regularly. Then some of them go to the mainland and they stay for years on end without ever returning to Taiwan. Right. I've asked PRC officials, I've asked party people or Taiban, so Taiwan office officials in Shanghai in particular, how many people, how many Taishang are there really in Shanghai? Uh -huh. And they have to admit, and I haven't asked in the last two years, but let's say, you know, within within the last five years, I have posed this question to people who were in a position to know, and they gave me a weaselly answer because they don't know either. Yeah, that's so funny. So, I mean, this was true back then, all, you know, that deliberate ambiguity about investments and headcounts and all that, but it's gotten, you know, so much more by the books now. Shouldn't we know something more better now? And maybe the Pandora Papers will help us sort through all that, you know, separate the round trip PRC money from the Hong Kong money from the Taiwan money and figure it out. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Uh, you know, by the time I got this book in, in press, I still didn't feel at all confident putting forward yeah, some yeah. super hard numbers. I, feel, I, I just think it's more honest to say, 
I don't know. I just know it's a lot. Yeah. yeah than yeah. to to you know give you a number and have you hang your hat on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally fair. So so just as our boy Chen Tianfu had had to get like big in Taiwan first before it made sense for him to move all the way to the mainland. Let's let's talk about the conditions that came together. I think we can go all the way back to Taiwan's land reform here to just to make possible this boom in light manufacturing that happened in Taiwan uh, beginning really in the 1950s and 1960s because I think there are a lot of pieces to this and I think you draw them all out really nicely uh, in the book. So what had to ha- what were the, 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 the different sort of streams that converged to make the Taiwan boom happen? Yeah. So, you know, the, the Taiwan contribution to the PRC's economic takeoff or economic miracle starts with a Taiwan economic miracle. That's right. And Taiwan's economic miracle has roots in the Japanese colonial period. So, Mm. you know, the Japanese attitude toward Taiwan was, we're going to make this a model colony. You know, it's part of that whole Meiji restoration idea of we're going to show the Westerners that we are every bit as civilized as they are. We are not colonizable because we are colonizers. And right. we're going to show what kind of great colonizers we are in Taiwan. So they put a lot of infrastructure actually into Taiwan in the early 20th century. So there's already roads, there's already railroads, telegraphs, there's potable water in Taipei in 1908. Wow. You know, which is incredible. Uh, and there's a certain amount of industry. It's all oriented towards supplying the Japanese market. So it's kind of food processing things. Um, But so Taiwan was kind of set up. uh, Literacy was high. The Japanese educated the Taiwanese Mm -hmm. pretty well. So when the nationalists arrived in the middle of the 1940s, after the whole kind of conflagration of uh, imposing control in 45, 46, 47, the place is ripe for development. However, you can take possession of a place, a territory and people who are ripe for development and blow it yeah, yeah. anyway. And you know the, the KMT government did not blow it in Taiwan. They made a series of good moves that enabled Taiwan to become this uh, manufacturing powerhouse that then you know, facilitated the the things that I'm really focused on in the book. So they begin with land reform. And unlike in the mainland where the KMT could not separate the landlords from their property in Taiwan, in part because of the conflagration in the mid 40s, they were able to separate the landlords from their property. And they did this land to the tiller reform similar to like the household responsibility system in the late 70s in the mainland. And as with the household responsibility system, it produces this rapid increase in agricultural productivity and output. Right, right. And so suddenly, you know, there's there's capital accumulation happening in Taiwan, but it's not being sucked away by the state the capital that's accumulated in Taiwan stays in households. And so households look for higher return investments. And they very quickly start doing household manufacturing. So beginning with kind of handicrafts. But immediately, the government sees the conditions being ripe for industrialization and starts that process. 
at the same time that they are doing the the sort of macro level things that you need to do for industrialization, like making sure people have raw materials for manufacturing, logistics, that they have sales networks. They're doing all of that at the national level, but they're supplying it to small and medium-sized, and so in a lot of cases, really super micro businesses. Right. So everybody in Taiwan, you know, not everybody, but many, many, many rural families by the 1960s were farming during the parts of the year where, you know, farming requires a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And then when the stuff is just out there growing, during the summer, they yeah. are in the factory doing injection molded plastics <laughs> manufacturing. That's the, the standard go-to for Taiwan's injection plastic molding or whatever. Yes, yes. And the thing is that that's great because uh, petrochemical is, is it, you know, that's ginormous. So that's a state-owned enterprise. Eventually, Formosa Plastics, which is a private company, comes in. Uh, but the, you know, the, the state ensured that people had cement for building, rebar, uh, logistics, so shipping. They set up these um, marketing, these trade fairs where the injection molding guys could go and, and meet their American clients and you know get them molds that they needed to make. But Certainly, you know, the steady stream of plastic coming down from those big petrochemical plants enabled these small and medium-sized enterprises to be actually a really big force yeah, in yeah, yeah. the consumer economy in places like the U.S. So, yeah, you mentioned the U.S. And, um, you know, America isn't always historically so tolerant of mercantilists countries uh, slapping tariffs on you. But Taiwan was definitely an exception. I think um, maybe we can talk about how the geopolitical environment, especially after the Korean War, really just transformed things for them, right? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, at the at the end of the Chinese Civil War, uh, U.S. government officials were kind of like, well, Chiang Kai-shek is a failed leader and he's not going to last long out there on that island. And then when the Korean War started, the whole thing changed. Oh my gosh, communism is on the move in East Asia and we cannot allow it to expand any further. And Taiwan became a protectorate of the US and that extended to economics. So a lot of agricultural progress that Taiwan made in those early years in the 1950s was also sponsored by various American aid programs. The Joint Commission on Rural Reconstruction was a really high-impact Taiwan-U.S. program for building up Taiwan's economy. And the U.S. was willing at that time. It's actually quite interesting. The American economic policymakers didn't look at Taiwan's exports as a threat to U.S. manufacturing because the U.S. didn't want to be making that kind of stuff. You know, right. plastic toys is low end and high pollution. So we, you know, in the U.S., we wanted to be making cars. We wanted to be doing more valuable um, manufacturing. And it was a kind of discipline for the American economy to have the competition at the lower end. Shoes, apparel, bedding, toys, you know, I think American policymakers were fine to have those industries taken over by other countries right. because they helped our industrial upgrading. 
So this is why Buzz Lightyear discovers that he's made in Taiwan and it rocks his whole world in Toy Story. Poor guy. Poor guy. Yeah, poor guy. That's just, I I love that touch in your book. And this is the kind of thing you can do as a tenured professor is introduce old Buzz. But, you know, I I don't want to to, to suggest that it was just the sort of friendly geopolitical environment that made this possible because there were some brilliant people who, you know, who were really, really prescient. You talk about a tag team, you know, one after the other, of these super technocrats of Ying Zhongrong and Li Guoding, who really steered Taiwan's economic direction um, really well during the 60s, all the way through the 80s, yeah? Yeah, you know, one of the things that's happened in a lot of developing countries is they get stuck in import substitution industrialization because import substitution creates this, this group of vested interests that don't want to allow competition. So they just want to keep doing that. And so Taiwan's super technocrats, when they saw Taiwan's sort of momentum of growth starting to slow, like mm-hmm. the, the space that you've created is now filling up instead of, you know, what, what we now call that involution, you know, the right. um, you just keep keep trying to find another corner in that uh, in that ever more crowded space. They forced the next phase of development. So they really pushed export-oriented industrialization so that Taiwan would not get trapped in import substitution, but would move on. And they weren't trying to build giant mega corporations. So this is something very different uh, from the other two places that we think of as having gone through the same process. Japan and South Korea, yeah. Yeah. You know, the the Japanese government wanted national champions. It wanted big companies. It wanted global brands. And the Korean government did too. And so they put a lot of resources into picking winners and driving consolidation. Whereas KT Lee in particular was much more comfortable with the kind of very nimble and very chaotic, small-scale SME economy that Taiwan had kind of generated organically. Uh, and so they they didn't really put a lot of emphasis on figuring out what was going to be successful and what was where they should push companies to go. They let companies go wherever. And, and you know, if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. Right. No picking national champions. Yeah. You know, it's only it's only 15 people who are exactly who are experiencing this bankruptcy and they are going to pick it up and try something else tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, so let's talk about this because this is just one of the most amazing things that in your in your book you cite this statistic that says that in the mid 50s, you know, 99% of Taiwan's companies employed less than 100 people. And that's that's amazing, but 50 years later in the mid aughts we're talking about, it was 98%. That is just astonishing. I mean, can you talk about what are the forces? I mean, what is it culture? Is it the sociology of Taiwan? Is it something economic? Is it, you know, that kind of Confucian smallholder mentality? I mean, what is it that combines to create this real preference for family-owned small SMEs? So I think it's largely path-dependent, honestly, mm, you know, mm-hmm. that this is where Taiwan started. The small and medium-sized enterprises are sort of born out of family agriculture. And those two 
modes of production are for a long time coexisting in the same kind of um, units. So part of it is just that that's where they started and there was nothing that happened that got in the way of SMEs continuing to flourish. But I do think there is a kind of a cultural component in that many of these are family businesses and the kind of um, approach that Taiwanese families have taken in business is for the patriarch to remain in charge as right. long as he is compass mentis um, <laughs> and sometimes beyond that point, honestly. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the sons are not sort of lined up behind the dad. They are spread out into different activities. So if if our business is bending metal, then one of my sons will go into bicycle tubes and another one will go into tailpipes and you know whatever it is. And that way, if something goes wrong in the bicycle industry, we can all go over here and you know work with Mr. Tailpipe. You're diversified. Right, we're diversified, we're, but we're within the same family, so we're sharing finance all the time. Uh, so we can move resources laterally across this diversified range of lines of business. And if the sons can't get along anymore, they want to break it up. I'm not tearing apart my core business. I'm just hiving off the tailpipes and, you know, off they go. So, and but then bottom line, Kaiser, you know, I hate cultural explanations. I'm enough of a social scientist to hate cultural <laughs> explanations. But there is this saying in Chinese, my favorite four character, or it's actually not four, um, but my favorite Chengyu is, it's better to be a chicken's head than a cow's ass. You know, <laughs> better to be in charge of something small than to be just a flunky in some giant corporation. And I do think that that's a big part of you know, that that's sort of maybe just because that's how we're living. So we decide that we like it. But, you know, a lot of people in Taiwan will say everybody wants to be a boss. Nobody yeah, wants to yeah. work for anybody else. And so that's how you end up with this kind of uh, incredible proliferation of very small businesses. So to summarize, yeah, path dependency and also, you know, primogeniture, schmimogeniture. And <laughs> but also also chicken's head better than cow's ass. right? Yes. Fantastic. So, yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so 1987 was clearly an inflection point where it suddenly did become possible to travel to China. Prior to that, you know, you just didn't didn't have this is still the, the era of the three no's. Right. You couldn't mail a letter or make a direct phone call or or travel. Um, so this this happened, though, at a, a particularly lucky moment for Taiwan, too. I mean, because this is just at the moment when made in Taiwan was coming to an end. I mean, suddenly, you know, you had this enormous new potential labor pool open up right across the strait. So, I mean, I, I was wondering as I was reading your book, did, did Taiwan just get lucky and it just it happened that at the moment that made in Taiwan was coming to an end that suddenly this, this mainland opportunity opens up? Or was it that Taiwan's policy on overseas travel and investment on the mainland was in response to the closing of the window of opportunity for, for domestic manufacturing? Well, Kaiser, you're asking me a question that I think is really interesting and I cannot answer. Right. It's one of those um, causality things, right? <laughs> well, but also because I never thought about it. 
the the narrative that has always, always, always been given to me is it was a lucky coincidence. Hmm. Uh, Jiang Jingguo's stated reason. So Jiang Jingguo was the president of Taiwan um, yeah. in 1987. The son of Jiang Kai-shek, who never in a million years would have allowed this. I don't care how badly Taiwan needed it or how good uh, it would have right. been. Right. But Jiang Jingguo was a different kind of leader. And the story that I have always heard is that he genuinely was looking at 40 years, you know, they're approaching 40 years after the, the end of the Civil War. End of the Chinese Civil War and the division between so called nationalist China and the People's Republic of China. And, you know, there's a couple million people in Taiwan who got, who came over, well, less than 2 million, but a lot of people came over in the midst of the Civil War thinking they were returning to China and got stuck there. They got, cut off by the civil war. These are my and, people. I mean, you uh, know, yes, the 49ers. Yes, exactly. Right. The, uh, you outside the province people right, right, uh, right. got stuck in Taiwan and you were never going to see your ancestors' graves. You know, you were never going to see the wives and children that you left behind. And, you know, the way the story was is always told is that Jiang Jingguo wanted those, for the most part, elderly men former soldiers to have one more chance to see the mainland before it was too late. Yeah. And so he opened humanitarian visits. And certainly, I think he was also seeing that China was no longer Mao's China and that the possibility of rapprochement of some kind might be possible. He was not interested in allowing the Republic of China to be swallowed up by the PRC. I mean, he was still a, an anti-communist. Sure. But I think he also saw the potential to bridge the huge divide, the huge gulf that had opened between the two sides over yeah, yeah. Uh, the 40 years. And that's even leaving aside the previous 50 years that were not part of uh, Jiang Jingguo's consciousness, but certainly matter a lot to Taiwan. Um, so anyway, he said, you guys can go. And, you know, I've seen little video snippets and photographs of men going to the mainland and, you know, they're walking down the uh, steps of the plane and there's always some like young guy behind them with the suitcases, you know, it's the <laughs> son-in-law or the son right. who is, and so grandpa may be looking for the graves of his ancestors, but the son-in-law is looking at the unbelievable opportunities that uh, mainland China, PRC in 1987-88 is presenting for uh, investment because there's this huge, uh, totally underemployed labor force that is very docile and super cheap. Local officials are falling over themselves to get investment because they're already by the late 1980s being rewarded for attracting you know GDP and economic activity to their localities they are in control of all of the resources that you need to start a business including the labor force so like what is not to love about that yeah. so that's how i tell the story although i really am going to now uh, start asking myself and my sources 
and uh, you know some of these biographies of Zhang Jingguo, whether he also may have had a little bit of an economic vision. Yeah, I saw the writing well. on the wall. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I, is this son-in-law come factotum come amanuensis? Whatever is the, the guy with the dollar signs in his eyes behind him <laughs> on the steps? Is is that guy? Taiwanese, or is he another Weishengren? I mean, was his first rush Weishengren led because of you know the elderly patriarch who wanted to go see the hometown in Jiangsu before he died, or or was it was, was this a Taiwanese phenomenon? Yeah, it's the very early visitors were uh, Weishengren, mm-hmm. but very very quickly the Bunshengren are going in behind because they're yeah, the ones who have yeah. the businesses. Yeah, you know? that's what I figured. One of the right. other things about Taiwan that's really interesting is the the KMT elevated Weishengren to the preferred positions in society. So like uh, all these reserved seats in the bureaucracy for people right. from every mainland province. And so Taiwan gets exactly as many seats in the MOFA or whatever as Hunan. So, you know, Taiwanese were really excluded from government employment, uh, lots of the kinds of things that were sort of high status. So they went into business. Yeah, they didn't yeah, really yeah, have yeah. other options. Um, and so a lot of Weishengren were not in business. They have, they were in Story other of my professions. Family. So they didn't really have the money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the money. They, you know, they weren't situated to go over and uh, move a factory to Dongguan or Kunshan and grow a business. You mentioned Dongguan and Kunshan. I mean, so yeah, they they clustered in the Pearl River Delta and the Yangtze River Delta, neither of which are the most you know logical when you look at just sort of cultural and, and linguistic affinity. Because as you say, a lot of these are, are you know Benjamin and, and they speak Minayu. They speak something so close to to, to you know the, the Minayu spoken in in Xiamen. Uh, in Fuzhou or whatever, um, that you'd think that that's where they'd go, right? But instead, they 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 set up shop in cities like Dongguan in the Pearl River Delta. Why, why is that? Yeah, because um, Dongguan is close to Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is how you get into China, Back right? Then, in yeah. those days, you couldn't just go directly to the mainland. You had to travel through, and really, Hong Kong was the by far the preferred point of entry. So it's interesting, you know, there is this narrative that uh, the reason this happened was that Taiwanese and, and mainland Chinese are so similar. And it was easy for them to do business together because, you know, they speak the same language and they have the same culture. And it's like, mm, not, not, not really. So yeah. The reason that it happened is because the PRC was begging for investment and Taiwanese were looking for a place to go because the cost structure in Taiwan was becoming prohibitive. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it just was not efficient to make a Barbie in Taiwan anymore. Right. But you could take, you know, the, if the cost of making that Barbie was 80 cents in Taiwan, you could drop that to 10 cents. I don't, you know, I'm making up the numbers, but the, the, cost savings of going to the mainland was just massive. So that's why they went. It was easier to do business there than say in Vietnam or Sri Lanka or Madagascar or you know some of the other places that um, they might have gone to find lower wages because there was a certain amount of um, cultural, like they know how to have 
how to do dinner. You know, yeah, they know they how know to how drink to, the Chinese way. Exactly. How to um, hand over that business card and how to right, right all that stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. And they they did speak Mandarin, so they could you know communicate with their business contacts and the local cadres in Mandarin. But I think it's really important to not to overstate the degree to which this was just all about the sort of cultural affinity between the two sides. It was really sure, about sure. money and opportunity. You mentioned Barbie dolls, and uh, there's a chapter in your book where you talk about this this town uh, this outside of, of Taipei called Taishan, I think it, it is, where all all the Barbie dolls were made. But you know, this whole ecosystem, the whole contract manufacturing ecosystem around Barbies. The, presumably, it's the ones that make you know the the dresses and I mean the, the ones who make Barbie shoes, the ones who make the the Malibu Barbie camper van or whatever. The, um, <laughs> that they pick up that whole ecosystem and just move it to China. So was this how was this done? Was this coordinated? Was it just sort of you know uh, ad hoc? I mean, how, did the guy who was like making the Barbie heads was he the boss and said, okay, everyone, we're going to to this town you know, in, in eastern Guangdong province now. Yeah, so Barbies are not the best example just because you have the, the foreign contractor also, Mattel, okay, right, I guess. Right. Um, yeah, Mattel. You know, also playing a role in how things go. But uh, yeah, so cluster manufacturing was a longstanding feature of Taiwan's SME ecosystem. Um, I remember back in 1991, I went to this village I don't, I have no idea where it was. It must've been um, either in Tainan County or Kaohsiung County. But anyway, they're making Christmas lights and like the house on the left, they're doing the, the wire, like they're, they're linking the, they're feeding the wire up into this little plastic thingy and then squeezing it on the wire. That's what they do. And then they send that to the next door place where they are um, molding the tubes. So they get tubes of uh, colored glass and they cut them into sections and then they like mold them into a Christmas bulb shape. Uh And so and then they pass it along to the people who are making the little metal screw cap that goes on the bottom. and, and, you know, so so each household has a different little teeny part of this process and they're all located right next door to each other. So they're and, joined at the hip. They, they can't they can't right. live without one another. Right. Yeah. So when the decision is made, you know, it's no longer cost effective to be doing this here. We could do this a whole lot cheaper on the other side. The whole thing has to go together and the bosses have to move to the mainland. You know, that's another thing about Taiwanese investment in the mainland that people don't always really appreciate. This, we're not talking about portfolio investment. You know, these right. are not shareholders paying into. These are black hands, flesh and blood human beings, right? The black hand bosses, these guys who have gotten their hands dirty on the factory floor, moving their equipment to the mainland and doing the exact same thing with the exact same management, with the exact same process, with the exact same customers, but they're using PRC labor Labor, instead. That is just (laughs) completely fascinating. So you mentioned 1987 is this really important watershed where suddenly it becomes possible to just cross the straits pretty easily from Taiwan to the mainland. Uh, But it might surprise some of our our listeners or some of the readers of your book that... um, the 
brutal and bloody denouement of the Tiananmen demonstrations that just happened two years later actually proved really useful to the Taishang in, in China. Can you explain why that was? I mean, why why didn't they, I mean, you would think that if anyone, you know, people from quote unquote free China would, would, would object uh, and take their business elsewhere. Yeah. You know, uh, the wild, wild west has its downside, which is there's no protection. There's no tax treaty. There's no consulate. You get into trouble, you know, they you're yeah you're vulnerable at their mercy yeah and absolutely. that's why another uh, big theme in my book are these Taiwanese businessmen's associations that form right. as a kind of mutual aid society for that um, but the upside of the wild wild west is that no one is in charge of you and you don't have to uh, like do sanctions if your mm -hmm, government mm -hmm. is doing sanctions on China after Tiananmen you know, they have no control. So what happened in 1989 was a lot of foreign countries really backed away from China yeah. uh, for political reasons. And they were slow to return in part because it wasn't clear the direction of the Chinese economic policy for the first couple of years until yeah. 1992. So that further that just expanded the space for the Taiwanese businesses to fill because they didn't have to, you know, they were not competing. There was nobody else there. And so they just kept coming. Um, and I think they got an even bigger foothold. But one thing that's really interesting about that is, at least at that time, a lot of PRC officials knew about that and they were maybe grateful is the wrong oh, word because yeah. it's hard yeah. to be grateful. But I... Um, I worked with a co-author on a previous project that was very similar to this. And he had a PRC official tell him, you know, our economy would never have recovered from the Tiananmen crisis if it were not for the Taishang. Ah, that's fascinating. You talked about their vulnerability. Um, was it common for Taishang to you know, cross the wrong local official and, and suffer for it? I mean, I've heard a few stories. But I wanted to get a sense of how they endured despite the, the vulnerable condition they found themselves in. Yeah, a lot of people had a lot of very hard times, yeah, um, you know, crossing the wrong local official or, um, you know, your guy gets promoted and you don't know the new guy or your guy gets in trouble and, you know, you go down with him. And because the Taiwanese were not locals, you know, they were they were vulnerable in a way, um, in some ways less vulnerable than local Chinese because they had money. Right. But in some ways more vulnerable because uh, they could be sacrificed without uh, kind of really damaging the fabric of of the locality. So there are a, just a vast number of business advice books in Taiwan on how mm. to like survive in, in the mainland. Oh, and wow. some of them will even say, like, you shouldn't go. You know, it's I, I use this one book from as a source for my book. And all of the chapters are like, there's no such thing as a win-win situation <laughs> in China. And, you know, like the law is your last line of defense. And so it was really, it was, it was definitely like pretty, pretty chaotic and you were pretty much on your own. Hmm. And so uh, the Taiwanese businesses tended to, to create, well, first of all, it was helpful that they had that cluster thing going. So they were, you know, they didn't come totally alone. So they had others who were working with them and they tried as much as possible not to have to depend on the locality. So Chen Mingqi and Tao Yifeng, 
who are two mm -hmm. sociologists in Taiwan, have crafted this expression, Kongzhong Baole. It means like the the fortresses in the air. Mm -hmm. Castles so they're in the like sky. floating, yeah. yeah, floating fortresses or floating castles. So everything is is pretty well self-contained within the fortress, and you try to minimize the the sort of ladders that people can climb up to get in. So you know they were definitely protecting themselves as best they could, and the Taiwanese business associations became a really important advocate where some of the leaders of the TBAs were just incredibly astute politicians, and they knew how to give local governments exactly what they needed in order to keep the Taiwanese on the right side of whatever political thing was going on. But they were on their own. Yeah, but would they encounter people, you know, when, when that, that really intrepid official would scale the ladder and then demand an audience with the TBA or with the factory boss, would would he say, you have to be in an awkward joint venture with a partner that's uh, not deserving probably, but you also have to transfer technology to that partner? I mean, that's, you know, the common complaint you always hear from European and American businesses over there. Yeah, there is where I think maybe the cultural affinity really served the Taiwanese well. They seem to have been much better than foreign businesses at fending off that kind of pressure. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. So they had their wholly owned factories from day one, wow. um, and they have not been like dragged into joint ventures. So the way you hear about Taiwanese companies losing their technology is usually, uh, we hired this local guy as a manager and he learned our business and then he went and set up across the street and yeah. um, his costs were lower because he's a local guy. That happened to my dad. I mean, all the time, a couple of times. <laughs> it's just <laughs> unbelievable. That trusted lieutenant who decides to just, you know, skedaddle with all your plans. And then... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's why my friend in uh, Shanghai, who was a... Uh, a sourcing guy in the apparel industry. I walked into his office and he said, oh, you shop at Eddie Bauer, don't you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's why he said, trust is a cost. We wow. do business with other Taiwanese as much as possible because mm. we trust them and we don't trust the mainlanders. So let's move beyond the world of, of contract manufacturing and injection molded plastic toys, which was sort of, you know, the Taishang story 20 years ago. But we see this dramatic shift, climbing the old value chain to way more sophisticated products. I mean, there are a lot of these companies that did this, but let's focus on two that are probably the best known and probably the, well, the ones that you talk about the most in your book. And one is, of course, Honhai Precision. Honghai is what it's called, uh, instrument. It's better known, of course, as Foxconn. And it makes every damn thing, right? I mean, <laughs> all, all the things that matter, right? All my Apple devices. Um, and then, of course, there's TSMC. I mean, before we look at each of these companies, maybe... We can talk about, you know, how what had been this small business family owned operations kind of dominated, you know, milieu suddenly transformed. I mean, it, how did it decide to go big like that? Yeah. So in the even as early as maybe the mid 90s, there was already a big scare that Taiwan's economy was hollowing out. Uh -huh. All of our manufacturing is going to the mainland. What will be left? Well, any you know, manufacturing economies can hollow out and just got get not replaced by anything. 
Kind of like America. <laughs> yeah, kind of like in America. But Taiwan still had these smart technocrats. They weren't yeah. the sort of famous brand name ones like uh, KT Lee, but they were uh, they were still there. And they still had the old playbook, which said, if we if we want to sort of regenerate the industrial energy, we need to help people figure out what's going to sell and what they can make and how they can make it. And so they they created and they were consciously thinking at that point, we want to get out of making Buzz Lightyear and Barbie and into making your iPhone. Um, I don't think there was an iPhone back then, but no, whatever the, the precursor to your iPhone was going to be, you know, video game, right? stuff like that. Uh, so they set up this thing called the ITRI. Yeah. Uh, Industrial Trade and Research Institute, maybe. But it was doing things like licensing, licensing whole patent portfolios, right, and 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 sharing that with ITRI members. Yes. Yeah, it was, it, and it, it had sort of taken everything that Japan had done and everything that South Korea had done, and then sort of ramped it up and, and did even more, right? Was, yeah, and the whole idea from the beginning was that it was an incubator that was going to spin off companies, and um, you know, one of the very first executives there was Morris Chang, who ended up spinning off TSMC. So, you know, on the one hand, you have the state kind of creating um, the incubator and the opportunity, but you also have to have people with good ideas. And Morris Chang's idea was the fabulous foundry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you, we will just make the chips that someone else Designs. designs, right? And we will take a really, really difficult technical burden away from uh, other technology companies and just, del- you know, just be super specialized in this critical component that is itself so hard to make that um, it needs to be uh, one company that that's making it, or it needs to be made in a specialized facility. So, you know, he he came out of ITRI, but then you also got Acer and Asus, these, um, you know, thinking more in terms of actually creating a brand Brands, yeah. in the uh, PC. Asus is like sector. the number three or number four, right? I mean, in the world. Yeah, today. yeah. People, yeah. Um, people in the U.S. don't really appreciate how big Acer and Asus both are, but they're especially big outside the U.S. So, you know, we're so addicted to our Apple and Microsoft that we're unaware of the existence of alternatives. Um, Although every year I look in my at my students, you know, my students pop their laptops off on their desks and there's usually somebody with a Taiwanese brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But before we get to I mean, I want to go back to TSMC, but let's let's go back and and talk a little bit about Foxconn, just because, you know, I mean, they're they're so iconic and they represent i mean they're just in terms of their sheer scale i'm first maybe shelly you can dazzle us with some foxconn facts foxconn (laughs) is just how big is foxconn oh well so foxconn is the largest private employer in china and has been for many years uh it is responsible for like maybe 15 million jobs in wow. China, they make something like 40% of all of the electronic devices in the world. Uh, yeah, you know, so Foxconn, 
Foxconn's really big. But one thing about Foxconn that's worth noting is its profit margin is tiny. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, Apple's still making all the money. Right. Um, so Foxconn's genius, the genius of Terry Guo and, you know, the what he's created with Foxconn is figuring out how to how to scale that electronic assembly process up to where you can actually squeeze enough profit out of it to continue to make process improvements and to actually improve the technology. So even with those razor thin margins, they still invest significantly mm -hmm. in R&D. I mean, it's like 1% or, or even more of, of revenues, right? Yeah. And, just... and that's because you know, the revenues are so huge. So the margin is small, but because the company is ginormous, yeah. uh, you know, the it adds up. But the company is always thinking about how to move forward, how to avoid being overtaken and replaced. So, you know, they continue to invest. And like right now, as the uh, price of labor in China is going up, Foxconn's response is has been not so much to move out of China because there are not a lot of other places where you can assemble 300,000 people um, to come to work at the same complex of factories. Like in this whole world, there are not many places where you can do that. Right. But they don't want to pay that rising uh, wage bill. So they're going for automation. Yeah, so they'll probably leave the factories in China, but they'll just automate them more and more. I've seen video. It's astonishing. I mean, what you see, the the, the number of ro robotic arms that are at work there. It's, it's, it's like it's a, a Japanese auto factory, yeah. only tiny. Yeah, exactly. It's it's insane. I mean, they're just, of course, one of several major EMSs, you know, electronics manufacturing services that are in China. They really pioneered that whole model. Um, and, and lest people think that they only are snapping together parts according to specifications that Apple sends them, Shelley, they are also an ODM. They've become like a significant ODM. I mean, they. Uh, what is preventing them from doing their own brands? From Is it just something they, they feel like they don't have the skill to do? Because, I mean, hire like 100,000 smart marketers and you're on your way. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think part of it is uh, that transition would be very difficult because Apple does not want that competition. I guess that's their secret, though. They've always kind of been like, we will never be competent. And that's been their, their big selling point, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And there are a lot of uh, that. That is not a principle only for Foxconn. You know, a lot of Taiwanese uh, contract manufacturers sort of fly below the radar and are able to sustain their contracting relationships because um, honestly, unlike some indigenous PRC firms that will compete with you, that will make their own brand and get in your way, uh, the Taiwanese have a, a sort of relationship of trust right. with their uh, customers that, you know, they will if they are going to make a brand, it will be adjacent to, for example, another company um, is in, they do, uh, they produce goods for hard goods for babies mm -hmm. and uh, all of its contract manufacturing. And then they thought about doing their own brand, but it was going to be like super high end. So right. hard goods for Hollywood babies. <laughs> so they would not even be in Toys R Us or Target or, you know, the places where um, their their customers are selling. 
Toys are no longer us. It's I know. Gone. Yeah, yeah. So, um, just to get back to your your the main thesis, it it seems to me that a company like Huawei, uh, their success was made possible because there were companies like Foxconn and TSMC. I mean, I I feel like that that um, you know, they created. Well, they didn't just create. Uh, this you know these EMS system and and all you know the whole ecosystem of fabs and everything like that, but also uh, they created this whole value chain. I mean, what you describe in your book is a red value chain, and that seems to be uh, it seems to me to be like the the thing that they they leave behind that really propels and and will continue to propel for many many years uh, China's economic development and their growth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um... And, you know, Huawei is an interesting example because one of the things that I really emphasize in my book is that without the Taiwanese firms, which already had these contracting relationships with global brands, China just couldn't be selling to those global brands because Nike, you know, Nike tried a little bit um, buying shoes from indigenous uh, PRC companies and they just they, they couldn't get the quality right. They were worried about the schedules and the um, IPR. So they went back to their Taiwanese contractors. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's it's the, the Taiwanese have the relationship and then they start manufacturing for that same customer in the PRC. And this opens the PRC to the world of contract manufacturing and export-oriented manufacturing. Um but Huawei is an example of a PRC company that is largely focused on the domestic market in China. And so they've sort of taken it a step beyond. So they've, they learn how to do the manufacturing process in part from these Taiwanese examples, but then they don't focus on primarily export-oriented manufacturing. They're focusing on the domestic market. Um, so it's kind of like, I, I'd say that the Chinese economy itself has matured to the point where that is what is needed. Right. And these companies are capable of filling that spot. So you've said that the heyday of the Taishang is basically passed now. It's just is this a matter of both of these economies having grown out of the respective developmental phases that made that whole Taishang phenomenon possible, or, or, or what is it? Yeah, I think it's mainly the rising cost and uh, indigenous capacity of the mm -hmm. PRC economy. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it the PRC is no longer a cheap place to make stuff. So a lot of the uh, traditional manufacturing in apparel, shoes, toys, stuff like that, the doodads of this world, <laughs> the widgets have moved on, you know, yeah, and they're, yeah. they're, they're getting pressed out somewhere else. Um, you can always figure out where, where the next boom is just by like, where are they currently manufacturing Christmas ornaments, right? Right, <laughs> yes. So right now it's Indonesia and uh, it could be somewhere else soon. Yeah, I look at those and I just think the person who worked on the factory line and made this must have been thinking, what, what the, the hell, hell is this? this? Yeah. <laughs> what is this fat man in a red suit on skis? I just don't get it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a great documentary that we we talked to the uh, the maker of. He he, he looked at uh, at Iwu. Iwu is this crazy town in in Zhejiang province where 
everything is, uh, I mean, where they sell all that stuff that's made in Donghua, uh, you know, wholesale. It, and it's just people sitting there amidst piles of plushy toys or, or making these things, you know, that, that become momentarily momentarily fashionable for one Christmas season. Some, you know, like ugly babies or whatever the hell. I mean, it's 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 really funny. It's a great, great yeah. documentary. Have I'll, you I'll... seen the one uh, about the Mardi Gras beads? No, no. Uh, I show that one to my students. It's about uh, this factory, this um, sweaty Hong Kong guy who, you know, he's trying to be a good boss, but he's actually really just a Simon Legree. And uh, he's got these this factory full of young women making Mardi Gras beads. And then they, they go to Mardi Gras and they take footage of what people do at Mardi Gras. And they show them to the girls in this factory. And I show it to my students as like, these young women have more pride and dignity standing in this filthy, hot, dangerous, gross chemical plant than those than revelers, those yeah. women's uh, on the streets of New Orleans, you know, like showing <laughs> their tits to get the beads. Yeah, God damn, <laughs> that's so funny. It, it's so a, yeah, it's I have a, all these questions for you about you know uh, all the non-business impact, you know, the music industry, religious life, culture, fashion. I've got an eye on the time here, so yeah. We let's one thing, one person we cannot fail to talk about though. I mean, and this goes back to before the '87 surge is Teresa Dung. Um, you know, Deng Lijun, yeah. uh, who I, I think just more than, you know, more than, you know, Morris Zhang or, or, or Terry Go uh, had a, a bigger impact on China. Well, it's that expression they used to, they, they used to say, um, it's like, it's like, 白天听老邓, 晚上听小邓, yeah. uh, where, where the word ting has, you know, which means to listen to, can also mean to obey. So in the daytime, we obey old Deng. And then in the evening, we listen to Xiao Deng, Teresa Deng. But, uh, of course, I think Teresa Deng was probably like a head taller than old Deng, but whatever. <laughs> so yeah. she, who was Teresa Deng for anyone who happens not to know? Yeah, Teresa Deng was a singer, a Taiwanese, actually, uh, Waisheng, um musical uh-huh. performer, and hugely popular really all over East Asia. She sang Japanese style. She sang uh, Hokkien style. She sang Mandarin style. She could sing in English. Um, the closest thing, and it's not even close, is like Karen Carpenter. Like, And, and Taiwanese yeah. people also love Karen Carpenter. Uh, so the mainlanders, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she had that soft, beautiful voice. But it was just what, you know, after the Cultural Revolution, where love, beauty, romance, sex were not bourgeois, allowed <laughs> in, in the PRC, Teresa Dung's music just kind of wafts across on the airwaves from Taiwan. And oh, yeah, isn't yeah, that yeah. gorgeous? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just just pregnant with the possibilities of a more joyful life. And it aligns actually with Lao Deng's um, policies because he is inviting Chinese people to enjoy their life, to buy consumer goods and stimulate the economy. So even though uh, there was a certain amount of ambivalence, I think among mainland leaders about the spiritual pollution that was was coming over, um, she was unstoppable. Yeah, absolutely. In the PRC. And so were then a 
a kind of parade of Taiwanese entertainers. There were also a lot of Hong Kong entertainers, but the uh, Canto pop audience is a little bit limited by their yeah. language. Yeah, whereas, by geography. Right? A, a, yeah, a lot of the um, a lot of the Taiwanese performers who have been really popular in the mainland sing in Mandarin. For sure. I mean, when I was there, I mean, I started playing music in China in 88, I guess. Yeah, it was 88. And then it was like Qiqin. Everyone just like loved Qiqin and his sister, uh, Qiyu. Uh, and then like Wu Bai and uh, uh, Zhao Chuan and all these guys. I mean, and their songs were fantastic. I mean, I can still remember all those songs. It's just it's, yeah. it's crazy. Well, Ho De Jian was yeah, a Taiwanese Jian, yeah. singer who gave us the whole idea that the, that all of China can be represented Lung by the, the dragon. Yeah, Long the Chuan. Yeah, and then that was uh, re-upped a few years later by uh, a Williams, a certain Williams graduate who went, went to China and made it big as a pop star. It was crazy, yeah, I mean, how, how impactful it was. We should give a shout-out to Tom Gold from UC Berkeley. Who, he just wrote a really great paper on all this stuff way back in 93. It was called Go With Your Feelings, which is the translation of a song called 跟着感觉走 <laughs> I remember that was one of those pop songs from back then. Anyway, it was called um, Go With Your Feelings, Hong Kong and Taiwan Popular Culture in Greater China. It was in China Quarterly in 93. Uh, that's just one of those kind of classic papers, and, and you reference it in, in your book. Um, you know, in uh, unfortunately, I'm going to pick up my kids but in 10 minutes, but I'm going to quickly... <laughs> A penultimate question for you, and I, I just don't think it's widely known, but it is certainly it certainly was the case that during the decade of the eighties, there was a lot of borrowing from Taiwan in terms of institutions, along with Singapore. Maybe Taiwan was seen as kind of a template for how soft authoritarianism could work, how even like a democratic transition would work. I mean, during the eighties, that wasn't off the table. You could talk about that still. So this was, of course, before martial law was lifted in Taiwan, and so it was still an authoritarian state and well before the first presidential elections. But Shelley, what were the areas in which China borrowed most heavily from Taiwan institutionally? Yeah, that was one of the most interesting to me and also one of the hardest things to research because uh, nobody wants to talk about it really. You know, right. the, the people who uh, were receiving this kind of expertise in the mainland don't want to tell you now that they got their legal system, their commercial law from Taiwan. And actually, <laughs> a lot of people in Taiwan who participated don't necessarily want to brag about the fact that they, you know, designed the PRC commercial code either. But basically, <laughs> the PRC, you know, they emerged from the Cultural Revolution with no laws, certainly no business law, no contract law, no, you know, labor law, because they didn't have property and they didn't have business. So, uh, they spent a lot of time in the '80s trying to um, figure out how to um, how to get Soviet-trained legal specialists to invent modern commercial law, and then they just kind of gave up on that after a couple of false starts. And in the '90s and in the 2000s, they relied heavily on Taiwanese consultants to help them construct a uh, a commercial code that would work for China um, and that was more aligned with the kind of Japanese and German um, approach to law than yeah. the Anglo-American. Oh, okay, okay, Shelley, and and that's that's fascinating. And I know that it's difficult to do research in that, but um, I I remember, you know, in, in the late 80s and in the 90s as a graduate student um, plunging into that and the whole discourse on neo-authoritarianism and finding 
you know, a surprising amount of direct reference to work being done in Taiwan and to actual, you know, exchanges with with uh, legal scholars in Taiwan. And so, yeah, yeah absolutely. There's that, that's you're not you're not imagining things. <laughs> so the last question, and this is not an easy one. So how, if you had to, to sum this up, how has the entanglement with China represented by the, the Taishang and their successors in these bigger companies, how has this complicated politics in Taiwan? A lot of Taiwanese have been very sensitive to the increasing interdependence between Taiwan and the PRC on the economic front, mm-hmm. but it has felt very distant. So, you know, the that water to the west of Taiwan was for a long time a one-way street. Yeah. People from Taiwan went to the mainland and they made a lot of money. And, you know, not all of them made a lot of money. Some of them went bust, um, but some of them made a lot of money, way more than they ever could have made in Taiwan because it's such a larger platform. You know, you can just, your company can get a lot bigger when you can, um, when you can hire 300,000 people to work in one complex. So that, money coming back to Taiwan. And that is another problem because it's not easy necessarily to get your to get your funds out of yeah. the PRC, but they can. Um, and, and that that increased inequality within Taiwan and created some political backlash uh, just by virtue of a society that had been relatively egalitarian and kind of small scale, suddenly recognizing that there were some businesses and entrepreneurs that had gotten, you know, like crazy rich Asian level <laughs> famous and wealthy, right. um, you know, like the, the limos lined up at the airport on Friday night. A lot of Taiwanese do not feel good about that. Um, but what really changed, I think, what, what finally broke through the feeling that, well, it's risky, but it's also an opportunity and there's a downside, but there's also a lot of upside. What broke through that was when the strait started being a two-way strait. And this is during the Ma Ying-jeou administration. Yeah, 2008, yeah. Yeah, after 2008, when uh, they began making uh, economic agreements between Beijing and Taipei that allowed money and especially that allowed people to come back the other way. And so suddenly this thing that was relatively abstract and if you didn't have to be involved in it, if you didn't want to, and maybe it was an opportunity for your kid to go and, you know, get a good job for a while, all of a sudden it's in your backyard. And all of a sudden you're worried that um, uh, PRC investors are going to come and they're going to take your business or they're going to be in your your sector. And when it became a two-way street, then it became much more intimidating. And mm. I think that's where you see like the sunflower movement coming from is just the realization that, yeah, we can we can send a lot of economic activity over there and we will not hollow out our economy. But if they start coming this way, <laughs> we will just be swallowed in no time because we're only 23 million people and and a million of them live in the mainland already. Oh, so they tell me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, it, that's what really tipped the balance in Taiwan away from yeah, engagement is probably on balance an okay thing to mm, we need to uh we need to get control of this. 
Well, Shelly, we're going to have you back on in, uh, Scott, it probably won't be very long at all, given all that's happening right now uh, in the Straits and, and the uh, premium on your expertise right now. And uh, I just enjoy talking to you so much. Um, let me remind people again that the book is called The Tiger Leading the Dragon, How Taiwan Propelled China's Economic Rise. It's just such a great read. Um, and of course, we will have you back on. Let's move on to record. Well, first of all, thanks. Thanks a ton. You're welcome. It's been a delight. Absolutely. And we're not done yet. So let me quickly just remind people that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like the work that we're doing with this podcast and with the rest of the shows in the network or you know with anything else we're doing at SubChina, uh, the, the best way you can help us out is if you subscribe to SubChina Access, our daily newsletter, which is just a fantastic read. I, I mean, there are other newsletters out there, but I, I one thing I can say about SubChina is, is it's just a better written newsletter. <laughs> it's it's all chock full of stuff. Uh, Jeremy is a, a, a very interesting stylist. I love the way he puts a personal touch on the newsletter. So check it out. And if you guys are an organization of some kind, an NGO, a di- di- diplomatic mission somewhere, an embassy or what, whatever, uh, a, a university program or a, th- a think tank or uh, what have you, just contact us. Alex is the man you want to talk to. Alex at subchina.com. He can set you up with a great group discount. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Shelly, what you got for us? I've been watching a show on Netflix called Giri Haji, which translates to duty, shame. And it I love a truly bilingual TV show that's like a popular TV show. Mm-hmm. Like I loved that uh, show several years ago called Kane with Jimmy Smits. I got a oh, thing yeah, for yeah, Jimmy yeah. Smits. Yeah. I uh, love but, Jimmy you know, Smits. It was, it was legit bilingual. It was like, they spoke Spanish when they should speak Spanish and they spoke English when they should speak English. I love some of the Welsh series on the BBC where they use subtitles for um, the Welsh portions. And this show is like that. So it's a Japanese um, BBC co-production and it's about this Japanese detective who is sent to London to investigate a Yakuza linked murder and oh, you already have me. I'm yeah, there. yeah, oh my it's, God. That it's sounds pretty so violent, and it's full of gangsters. It's got like English gangsters, Japanese gangsters, Albanian gangsters, um, but it's just very creatively done. I love that it's, uh, as I said, truly bilingual. And every once in a while, it lapses into anime for what? like flashback <laughs> scenes and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden, you know, like the guy turns into a cartoon, and oh my uh, God, I love it. It's so creative. Sounds like something I want to watch with my daughter, who's totally fluent in Japanese. So Yeah, yeah well, watch out, because like I said, it's really violent. So All right. Giri Haji. Okay, so my recommendation is I am actually only about 20% or so of the way done with it, but it's quite a doorstop. Um, it's the new Jonathan Franzen novel, Crossroads, mm-hmm. which is great. I mean, it's it's another family story, you know, kind of like uh, the corrections, right? But this time it's set in, it's mainly set in the 70s, though there's a lot of sort of backstory that goes all the way back to the early part of the century. Um, it centers on the Hildebrand family. Uh, the father's like a Presbyterian minister in a Chicago suburb. Uh, the wife who has a dark past, lots of secrets. Uh, there are four children, one of whom is young enough at this point where he hasn't really been fleshed out, but the others are drawn with, I mean, in tremendous depth, um, this is actually the first book in a planned trilogy, which is called The Key to All Mythologies. And if you're a fan of George Sand's Middlemarch, uh, you'll, you'll recognize that, that, uh, that title, which was 
the the name of the fictional book that uh, the protagonist of Middlemarch, uh, who's some of my favorite literary characters of all time, Dorothea, she marries this pompous guy, this Reverend Cosabon, uh, and he's writing this really silly book. You know, he's very very serious about it, but it's completely out of date already. Called A Key to All Mythology, so it's kind of a humble brag. Um, but it's meant to kind of like tell you signal, I think, Franzen meant it to signal, yeah, this is kind of inspired by Middlemarch. And it kind of is because there's a lot of, you know, comedy of manners stuff, but it's also Middlemarchy in that it is like a really canny, psychological, plumbing the depths of characters kind of a book, right? I mean, it's really good, um, deep kind of exploration of human motives and things like that. So, I mean, what he does with this book, and it, it's just, it's, it's, it sounds like it would be terrible, I mean, because it's just this unembarrassed exploration of morality. It's like, you know, what makes people good or bad? Uh, what, if anything, actually constitutes altruism? I mean, it's really, it's amazing, though. I mean, I, I cannot put it down. In fact, I, I have been making excuses to, to go out driving just so I can listen to the show more without having to be interrupted. Uh, but it's yeah, great. Well, and you know, if it gets too heavy for you, you can just tune into Giri Haji and watch right. the Albanian gangsters yeah. gun down the Japanese guys. <laughs> All right, Shelly. Thank you once again. The book is called The Tiger Leading the Dragon, How Taiwan Propelled China's Economic Rise. Just can't recommend it highly enough. It's just such a piece of, of history that hasn't been thoroughly explored until now. So uh, thanks so much. Uh, what a great, what a great time. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Again. It's great we'll to be with you. See you again real soon. Okay. okay, good. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com just to tell us how we're doing. Or, or, you know, just as good, you can give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps people to discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. We've got a new one. It's It should be out by the time you hear this podcast. It's called... The China Sports Insider Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. <laughs>